So we want to move on to the um, second part of our seamless uh, or quasi-seamless discussion on sentencing issues that are and challenges that are facing us. The second person on the panel uh, in your program today, uh, Sonia Starr, is um, on her way. She's somewhere between here and New Rochelle, if anybody knows what that means. We're not sure if she's going to get here in time. Uh, she may get here at the end, but we're trying to see if we can hook her up by speakerphone, uh, which doesn't seem like too much of a technical lift, but you never know. But uh, So I'll give you that fair warning. But we're going to start, first of all, because we have a great... Um, uh, discuss it in a great discussion heading up and it's really um, the quality of the people who are going to be speaking um, uh, speak for speaks for itself uh, to to lead the discussion we have Eileen Sullivan um, uh, who's an investigative reporter for the Associated Press again you have her on your uh, her bio on your in your package um, she's covered law enforcement corrections and security issues um, before that, she's worked for the, M the AP and Congressional Quarterly and Federal Times and covering um, the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but in, in terms of her career, in 2012, she and three other uh, AP reporters won the Pulitzer Prize, along with the Goldsmith and Polk Awards, for a series of stories that you all, I'm sure, have heard of, uh, which revealed the NYPD's... Um, program of spying on Muslims throughout the Northeast. So um, amazing uh, journalistic job and achievement. Uh, so Eileen, um, over to you, and then we'll take it from there. This is going to be a panel of about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, as I said, if, our, if uh, Professor Starr gets here in time, or we'll try to hook her up by speaker. Um, so it's a compressed panel, but there's going to have a lot of information in it. Eileen? So the last session, tell me if you can hear me or if I need to speak closer. The last session, we went over quite a bit about mass incarceration and an appetite right now in the U.S. to do something about it. And risk and needs assessments, I found, is one of the most common um, ways to address this that states are turning to. It's, um, it's, I don't know if you all have your little pew sentencing and corrections reforms. This I look at all the time. It's a really great guide for what's going on in the states. And so for reporters, if you're looking to cover just in your own state what's happening, you can look here at the top and, and see. It's, it's just a great chart. And you'll see that the risk and need assessment is the, you know, one of the two top reforms at, for these justice reinvestments. And if your state's not on here, it doesn't mean that these tools aren't being used. They're, um, I mean, California is not on here, but they're being used in California and um, across the country. And so I have been looking at basically what, how they're being used and how they're, um, whether they're effective. And I run into a couple of problems there because there's not a lot of information in the way of, you know, freedom of information. You can't ask for the risk and needs assessment. They don't give that out, even to the defense attorneys, even to the defendants. Um, so that's difficult to, to look at this. But, and I'll let, um, get into more of the details, but the, the basic thing is you're going to assess the risk and needs of a defendant to determine their risk of recidivism. And the needs part is kind of the newest part of this, because if you the theory is if you get the defendant into the right programming, it could reduce their risk of recidivism and therefore help get people out of prison and not coming back into it. So Anne is a leader in the development of these tools and has been working with states across the country to implement this at various stages in the criminal justice process. They're used in the pretrial context um, Increasingly in sentencing, which Sonia Starr, when she gets here, will talk to us a lot about, um, and more broadly in the parole and probation context. So, Anne, I will let you get started. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about risk assessment and my background um, working with risk assessment and then some of our national work. Um, I, let me start by... Um, telling you just a very brief story about the time uh, when I was Attorney General for the state of New Jersey. Because 
Um, I became the first assistant attorney general in 2006 and the attorney, and the attorney general in 2007. So I presided over the, ju the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, which some of you may know. Um, it was a program and a project intended to look at juvenile detention in, across the country. And before I got involved with JDAI, I didn't know anything about risk assessment. Um, I was a career prosecutor. I'd been in the Manhattan DA's office. I'd been at the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Um, and then I went to the state of New Jersey where, um, interestingly, the attorney general is in charge of the Juvenile Justice Commission um, and is the chief law enforcement officer for the entire state and oversees a 9,000-person office. So I had quite an education, including um, in the Juvenile T Detentions Alternatives Initiative. We ran that initiative in the state of New Jersey, and we basically took a juvenile justice program that was 1,000 kids, and we reduced it to 600 kids. Um, and that's important for a lot of reasons, but the, the thing that's most important for me to talk with you about today is that we did that primarily through the use of a, of a validated risk assessment tool in each of the counties. And why that, risk why that risk assessment was so important is that what we found when we started to look throughout the state to try to understand why we had such high percentages of juveniles incarcerated, um, and I should tell you also that the Juvenile Justice Commission at the time was 98% minority. Uh, the kids in juvenile justice at the time in New Jersey were 98% minority. And so we asked a lot of questions to try to understand what's happening, why are we overcrowded, um, and can we make better decisions. And what we found pretty quickly was that there was an enormous amount of discretion in the process of determining whether or not a juvenile should be processed through the system and incarcerated or whether or not they should be released. And in a nutshell, what that boiled down to was the question of, did the kid's parents show up at the police department, right? So a kid would be arrested um, for having done something, and then there would be this moment, and the police had enormous discretion, where some kid's parents would show up and say, I got this, I'm so sorry, my you know, son or daughter has made a mistake, and other kid's parents wouldn't show up. And when we looked at it, overwhelmingly the kids whose parents didn't show up ended up being incarcerated. Now, I don't sit here and say that there was anything intentionally discriminatory or intentionally wrong about what the police were doing. They were making discretionary value judgments on what information they had at the time and a belief that the parents were coming to the station were going to actually address wrongful behavior and so on. But the actual outcome of those decisions was tremendous um, and extremely problematic. So using validated risk assessment tools throughout the state, we were able to basically go from 1,000 kids to 600 kids, while at the same time significantly reducing juvenile crime. And we were able to do that by making better decisions about who posed a risk to public safety and who didn't. And that, in a nutshell, is really the purpose of risk assessment tools, to assist in what is a pretty complicated decision-making process. For us, at least, we work at the front end of the system, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But in order to make the decision better about who should be released and who should be detained, the question was, can we use objective scientific instruments to help make those decisions better? Now, it's really critical to say we don't take the decision makers out of the process. So in the work we do with courts, the judges make the ultimate decision, and the judges have the ultimate discretion. And that's a really important point to make, that the tools are meant as aids for decision making, not as replacements for decision making. So when I came to the Laura and John Arnold Foundation in 2009, John and Laura Arnold asked me to go through, um, and the Arnold Foundation, we're based in Houston, I'm based in New York, but the foundation itself is mostly based in Houston, Texas. Um, we have a $1.5 billion endowment, and my uh, job is to run national criminal justice reform. Um, so the Arnolds came to me and said, okay, where are the greatest opportunities for reform, right? And based on my experience in New Jersey and seeing how we were able to really significantly shift the juvenile system, one of my immediate answers was to look at the adult system and to look at how the decision is made of who to put in jail and who to release. Um, most of you in this room know this and are probably more familiar with the statistics than even I am, but we're talking about the fact that jails in America, two-thirds of the people in jails today are waiting for trial. So they're pre-trial. Um, 12 million arrests a year. Everyone goes through this release detention decision at some point. Um, and we spend billions of dollars, not just on the criminal justice system, but also on pre-trial detention. The estimate is about $9 billion a year. And so the question I started asking, and I really didn't have a lot of information when I first started asking it at the foundation, but the question I was asking is, like the juvenile justice system in New Jersey, where I actually felt that we were detaining some of the wrong people. Right? that we weren't making the best decisions we could make consistent with public safety, fairness, and cost effectiveness. The question was, is that the same in the adult system? And the tricky part about that, and Eileen just mentioned it a little bit, is getting data and getting the ability to access that information and to really understand, okay, we make these decisions every day, but are we making the right ones? Um, we were very, very fortunate. Um, we were able to get data from 
every jurisdiction using risk assessment tools, every multi-jurisdictional area of the country that's using risk assessment tools, and the federal system. And that basically means we now have over 300 jurisdictions worth of data, um, probably about 3 million cases at this point in time. We started with 1.5 million. We now have probably over three. What's important about that is that it let us look at what was happening. And so there are two things that it basically let us discover. The first was who's actually in our – who, who does our system, who's our system made up of? Those 12 million people who get arrested each year, who are they, right? What level of risk do they pose? And by risk, I mean risk of, risk of committing a new crime and also the question of whether someone will return to court. But just staying on the question of right now whether someone will commit a new crime if they're released, what we found, and this is pretty true, this is a national statistic, but it's pretty true in the, all the local jurisdictions where we've looked, is that about half of all people are what we call low risk meaning that they're really likely to come back to court. They're really likely to not commit a new crime. About 40% of people are um, what we would call moderate risk, meaning that they pose some risk um, and that the question then becomes, can they be released to the community with supervision, monitoring, or other alternatives to incarceration? Um, and then there's a small but important percentage of people that varies in jurisdictions between 5 and 10% um, that are high risk, the people who we worry about committing new offenses if they're released. Um, and so we started looking at that and asking the question, okay, what happens with those people in those buckets? If I asked you what you think should happen, most people in the room would say the same thing. You should release people who don't pose a risk to public safety or who can be safely monitored or supervised in the community, and you should detain the people who pose a risk to public safety, that small percentage of people. And that is what we expected to see when we ran the data nationally. Um, is based on the current charge or the offense that someone's committed. So, for example, in some jurisdictions, a theft crime, everyone who's charged with a theft crime has a certain set of conditions that are applied to that case. In other jurisdictions, there's complete discretion by judges. Um, and that means that the judge uses their experience and instinct. Um, but keep in mind, they're often being asked for conditions by prosecutors. Um, and so in many instances, although the conditions may be minimal, those conditions are often enough to lead to detention um, of an individual defendant. So we looked at this, um, and we also looked at the question, again, of risk assessment, because I came back to this idea that what risk assessment does is it helps us classify people um, in terms of their risk of reoffending, right, and the risk to public safety. And we started looking in the U.S. at who used risk assessments pretrial, and we found that less than 10% of U.S. jurisdictions use them. And so we started asking the question of why, right? We think it works. We think it's a great aid for decision-making. Uh, we think it can both make the system safer, more fair, and significantly reduce levels of incarceration. So why aren't people doing it? The number one reason we found was cost, plain and simple. Um, the city of Washington, D.C. runs an extraordinary pretrial services program. They ran one of the first. Um, I think it is incredibly well run. They have a very sophisticated risk assessment. Um, at the time we started looking at it in 2011, I thought that the cost of that was about $30 million. I'm pretty sure it's double that today. I'm not sure of the exact cost, but it's really considerable. And so what we realized pretty quickly was that the way that risk assessments were being developed and used in jurisdictions had to be reformed. Um, so I call the work that we've done, and this might make me sound old, but I think of it as version 2.0, risk assessment 2.0, um, because what we've done is try to make it simpler, fairer, um, more cost-effective, and really to create a tool that has really minimal cost for a jurisdiction to implement that can be used across the country. And so um, we basically put the smartest researchers we could find in the space in the room. We gathered all this data and all these cases. And what we found um, was that there are nine factors that are the most predictive at answering three separate questions. The first is who's going to commit a new offense if released. The second is who will commit a new offense of violence, which, as you can imagine, is the thing that judges and courts worry the most about. And the third is, are people going to come back to court? Um, and we did that looking at um, hundreds of factors nationally and over 900 correlations. So pretty much anything you guys can ask me about during the question and answer period, if we looked at it, the answer is yes. Right? Um, we looked at all the factors we possibly could, and then we combined them in different ways to see what was most predictive. And what's really interesting is that the things that are most predictive turned out to be prior criminal history, the current offense, whether it's violent or not offense, and the age at, at the time of the current arrest. Um, and so we'll talk, I think, when Professor Starr gets here about other factors in, that are sometimes added in risk assessments, things like demographic factors, um, socioeconomic factors. and 
in truth, what we found when we did the research and we started working on this project is that the most predictive factors are the objective administrative factors related to prior criminal history, as well as um, the current charge and the age of current offense. Um, so we built a risk tool um, that is highly predictive and answers those three questions. Um, we went statewide in Kentucky in July 20, 2013. Um, the data is really promising. What we have seen is an almost 15% decrease in new criminal activity, meaning that crime is down by almost 15%. At the same time as we've seen a small reduction in the jail population. Bless you. Um, and I think the small, it's about a 2 or 3% reduction in the jail population. That's important to us for two reasons. One is that Kentucky was already using a very strong risk assessment tool before they switched to ours. Um, and so they had already significantly reduced their levels of pretrial incarceration. They release over 70% of people today. Um, and that's a pretty high percentage if you start looking nationally. So we've improved upon that, but I would argue they were already pretty good in that space. Um, and the second thing that's important is just to understand, you could all sit there and say, well, She's saying they've dropped crime by almost 15%, but does she keep everyone in jail, <laughs> right? Like, is that how they're doing it? And the, the short answer is no. Um, the idea is to help judges make better decisions by having access to objective, um, data-driven information that presents information about these three factors, but then to have the judges look at the individual case and make the decision based on that, um, all of that coming together. Um, we are piloting in a number of other U.S. jurisdictions right now. We're in Santa Cruz, in Charlotte, um, we are in five counties in Arizona. We are about to expand to 19 more jurisdictions in the U.S., including one major U.S. city um, that we're really excited to work in. We do um, additional reforms in the pretrial space when we get on the ground. So it's not just that um, we do the risk assessment work, but as part of the research we've done, we've uncovered a couple of other really important things. Um, one is we've looked at the length of pretrial detention and what impact that has on long-term recidivism. What we found repeatedly is that for low and moderate risk offenders, that the longer they're detained beyond 24 hours, the more likely they are to commit crimes during the pretrial space and at 12 and 24 months. We don't know why. We can't prove causation. Um, what we can say is that there's a high correlation between detention beyond 24 hours for low and moderate risk people and increased recidivism. Um, a lot of people have given us a lot of great theories, um, but we haven't been able to prove out what it is. Um, but we do know that there's an impact that comes from pretrial detention. And so the importance of making those decisions quickly and well, um, I think, has been, really been underlined for us. So in a lot of jurisdictions where we work, for example, we went to one jurisdiction where they routinely didn't make release detention decisions for eight days. It's a long time. Um, and we basically said we'd be delighted to work with you on the risk assessment, but only if you will change your decision-making process to basically process all defendants and make a, de a decision on release or detention within the first 24 hours. So we do a lot of other work that's related um, to risk assessments and pretrial reform. I had a limited amount of time, so I've, that's my well, let me, before we get, starting. Uh, before we get <laughs> Professor Starr on the phone, is she available? She's uh, hopefully going to be calling in in seconds. Okay. I'll get her by speakerphone. Okay. Well, so let me set her up here. Um, some of these questionnaires, I mean, the ones Anne are talking about, that that's one set. There are all different ones around the country, and they can range from 10 questions, which look at things like what Anne was talking about, your past criminal history, how old you were the first time you were arrested, um, your current age, your, you know, some basic situations that, that don't change. Others uh, that Professor Starr, I think, is going to talk about, I mean, other questionnaires could be as many as 130 questions. And they ask you things like, how easy is it to get drugs in your neighborhood? Um, were either of your parents ever arrested? Were either of your parents ever incarcerated? Did you ever skip class in school? And it's getting into some issues that are, you know, a lot of people are concerned could become proxies for race um, in the long run. And they are worried that it's punishing people for things outside of their control. I mean, it's not in your control if your parents were arrested, you know, with nothing to do with you. And, um, and these are some of the, the really big problems. You know, how much does this factor into a decision that's being made at any of these stages? And it's moving along at the state level and under serious consideration at the federal level right now. Tomorrow, uh, another bill is going to be reintroduced that was introduced last year to look at this for the federal system. And the U.S. Sentencing Commission also is um, looking at the, the pros and cons of the use of these tools. So Professor Starr is really concerned about the discrimination aspect, and mostly in the sentencing context, because she doesn't think that 
these demographic factors should have any impact on the length of your sentence. And so, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to jump in. You had said that you are looking at getting away from the questions altogether. Do you want to talk about the difference in what you're doing sure. and, and yeah. what a lot of other states are doing? I mean, the common tests that you're going to see, um, if you can get your hands on them, are the LSI-R. These acronyms are really awesome, so just get ready. Um, ORAS, which is kind of the basis for a lot of them. That's the Ohio Risk Assessment System, and it's tailored for different states. So there's like TRAS, and I mean, it's just, just go ahead. And they, that was developed out of the University of Cincinnati, and the guy who developed that is also works around the country implementing it and training people. Um, we got it? Okay. Or any of the 
any of his family members have ever been a crime victim. All of those things count against you in sentencing. Um, so essentially every indicator of socioeconomic disadvantage that you could possibly imagine has been included, and all of them add to the risk score. And that's the kind of disadvantages presumably are statistically associated with greater crime risk. But just because something is statistically associated with greater crime risk does not mean that it is right to sentence people on the basis of this. Um, I want to make clear that this happens automatically and mechanically. So we are used to thinking about socioeconomic and other disparities in sentencing as being something that's subtle and unconscious, something insidious that we have to detect through complicated empirical analyses. Um, this is something different. It's not that just as they're subtly taking inappropriate factors into account. It's that the state has codified discrimination on the basis of those factors. Any time the judge gives any weight to the risk score, um, she's going to be giving weight to uh, socioeconomic and demographic factors because they're built into the formula. Um, Somewhat surprisingly, the nature and severity of the crime on which the defendant is being sentenced is not included in any of the instruments. Um, and um, perhaps it's for that reason that the LSIR training manual specifically says it was never designed to assist in establishing a just penalty, although that's precisely what it's now widely being used for. Um, the only thing they don't usually include in the assessments is rates. Everyone seems to, to agree that that would be unconstitutional. But when you sentence people, um, to hello, can you hear us? Hello? Yeah, can you hear hello? us? Yeah. So did we get all that? <laughs> I, she has a lot to say on this, so. Even if she is finished, I mean, she's never finished, but I, I would recommend, I mean, she has, she has a lot to say on this, and the, if you want to quickly get up to speed, she did an op-ed in the New York Times last year about this issue, so if you just Google New York Times, Sonia Starr, um, sentencing risk assessment, she lays it all out there, and what she was saying is, which I'm disappointed we can't ask her about, is that she's mounting an argument that it's unconstitutional, so I... Would have liked to have asked her more about that. We'll just have to follow up. So, do you all have questions? <laughs> okay. How do you want to do this? All right. Go ahead. Do you want? You got a mic. So that's a that's a great question. I mean, the the first part of it is really how does the question is how does the risk assessment predictive analytics how does it compare to other existing tools? Um, in some instances, we can speak to that, but in a lot we can't because a lot of the risk assessment tool information is proprietary. I can tell you though that we have looked at the, many of the tools in the jurisdictions with whom we've worked, um, and that the tool is equally or more predictive. Um, what I think is really interesting, and we've improved upon this, but when we first started asking the question, um, the reason I wanted to see if we could eliminate the defendant interview is that when we ran the Juvenile Detentions Alternatives Initiative in New Jersey, um, we have 21 counties in New Jersey, and everyone county, every county said to me, can we please make our own, right? And so at the time, I thought, sure, every county is different, rural, suburban, urban, I'm going to let everybody make their own. Well, it turns out everyone is different in the same way. So everyone basically made the exact same risk assessment. And the questions that were the subjective interview-based questions um, were weighted the least. So when you looked at the scoring mechanics behind it, they had they carried the least amount of weight. And some, some of the counties had certain interview questions. Others had others. And so it wasn't clear to me that they added that much value. I then read Chris Lowenkamp, who, of course, has now become one of our key researchers. But I read Chris's meta-analysis on risk, um, which clearly shows that the objective administrative 
criminal justice history data, um, that those are the most predictive factors. So I asked the question, could we eliminate the inner? I think there are a lot of appealing reasons to ask that question. One is the cost factor, which obviously what drives you know 30 or $60 million is that you have to have people interviewing everyone who comes through the system. The second is um, in many jurisdictions, defense counsel would not consent to risk assessments because they didn't want their clients interviewed. Um, they basically want, didn't want that information potentially to be used. Um, and the third thing is that it added sort of another layer of subjectivity, right? You've got sort of these subjective questions and answers going into the mix. So we went to the state of Kentucky, which has been a national leader in pretrial. They, at the time, had a 13-question risk assessment. Four of the questions were non were interview questions, um, and nine were non-interview questions. So just to answer this basic, and I come from the, the lean startup perspective, right? You, you try to answer the fundamental questions as quickly as possible. What would happen if we took those four questions out? So we scored their Kentucky's old risk assessment. We just took those four questions out, and it scored equally, right? And so that was the information we needed to know, okay, this is worth going further. We then went nationally and gathered all the data from these jurisdictions, all of whom used interview-based risk tools. So a place like Colorado had also done a survey of defendants. They had just a wealth of factors that they had gotten from defendants. And that's what let us really look at this question of, you know, do you need these other things? There are factors out there, um, and I'm not going to remember them correctly off the top of my head, but there were a couple of factors um, that if you didn't have those nine criminal justice factors, they might be statistically helpful. But if you have those nine factors, nothing else improved on the analytics. Um, and so what that really, I think, um, is important for a number of reasons. Additionally, because like you said, these are the factors that judges already consider, that DAs consider, that police consider. And so in terms of culture change and getting folks to think about combining you know, some objective decision-making tool along with their subjective decision-making, it's a much easier, it, it's much easier to basically say, look, these are the things you already look at. Um, and in truth, they are. And I should also note one other thing, which is that we don't use prior arrests, we use prior convictions. Um, and that we don't use the age of first arrest, we use current age at the time of this arrest, just so everyone knows. And why is that? Um, well, you know, we ran the analytics, um, basically, and um, there's, there's two reasons. One is analytics and two is fairness. Um, I think age at first arrest, um, it, it didn't add to the predictive analytics, and I think there are fairness questions um, that are raised. Um, and again, it's, it's not a question of improving analytics, and to me it's a question of fairness. Um, and in terms of conviction versus arrest, um, generally you see that they come out almost equal in terms of predictive analytics. Um, there are times and circumstances where arrests appear to be slightly more predictive, but it's so marginal that to me conviction is the far fairer um, question to ask. And so in using convictions, we ultimately have really high predictive analytics, and we've made a decision um, not to get into the question of, you know, is it fair to hold somebody accountable for being arrested when they haven't, in fact, been convicted for a crime? Um, and so instead, we hold people, you know, people under the risk tool are held accountable if they've been convicted. Sonia, are you there? Can you uh, yeah, I can sort of hear sort of and have a distance. Okay, can you talk about... Um, sort of your thoughts on the potential for discrimination in the tools that Anne's describing versus the LSIR, Compass, the, the other ones that you were talking about earlier? Well, I think that um, the instrument that Anne's, um, uh, or that the Arnold Foundation has developed is um, a big step forward in that it doesn't rely on these factors that I'm describing. And so I think it would be a big improvement if, after, uh, if that were more widely Adopted. I mean, I know that right now it's designed for the bail stage. Um, you could imagine a similar um, instruments designed for the sentencing stage. Um, I think that one thing to think about in the sentencing stage is if you had a an instrument that was essentially entirely based on criminal history, um, would there really be a point of adding it in the sentencing stage? Because sentencing law already gives built in quite heavy weight in most jurisdictions to criminal history. So you've already got in sentencing guidelines essentially points being added um, for past convictions, basically for the purpose of, of it being um, related to risk. And so also giving judges a risk assessment might essentially be double counting uh, or increasing the weight are given to those factors um, in a way that you might, you might not really want to do. Um, so that said, I think it would be a lot less 
troubling um, to have risk assessment instruments that were based on things that people did rather than how much money they have or other kinds of factors that are outside of their control. Okay, thanks. Next question. Go ahead. Katie uh, <coughs> Greenberg, NYU Sociology. Starting around 1970, the Nixon administration floated a proposal for pretrial detention uh, along the same lines that you are, are talking about, and it was subject to pretty powerful critique by Lawrence Tribe, Alan Dershowitz, Caleb Foote, and others uh, on several grounds, an important one being the problem of false positives. You haven't spoken about the predictions of people who would commit a new crime if released, but actually wouldn't if allowed uh, to go free. Then along came the neo-retributivists, the just desserts people, who said people should be punished based on what they did. Even if prior criminal convictions are in your model, they've already been punished for that. So now two people coming in with the same accusations against them could be handled very differently because of a, pr a prediction of what they're going to do in the future, a prediction that they have no opportunity to refute. If we're accused of a crime and go on trial, we have a high standard, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a little vague, but we have some rough idea of what, how, how you might establish beyond a reasonable doubt that you didn't do it. But how can you ever establish beyond a reasonable doubt what someone predicts you're going to do in the future? Um, okay, so there, I'm going to answer that question in a few different ways. Um, I'm going to start by saying that Caleb Foote has one of my all-time favorite quotes on this subject, um, which comes from 1956, which is, pretrial decisions determine mostly everything, right? Um, and people keep saying it. There are people who've repeated that in 2009, 2012, but he, to me, was really very prescient in understanding that it impacts the way the entire criminal justice system turns out for people. The second thing I'd say is that I didn't bring the charts with me, and I wish I had, because sometimes it's a little easier to have this discussion when you see the actual risk scales. But our risk tool operates on a level from one to six, one being the lowest level of risk, six being the highest. So in new criminal activity, someone who's a one basically has a 10% likelihood of committing a new crime if they're released. Um, the national average is between 15 and 20% new criminal activity. So basically, the ones and the twos are the lowest level folks. They fall below the national average. And what it basically means is one in 10 of these people will get rearrested if they're released. And it is a broad generalization, basically. The person in front of the judge may or may not be that one, um, but the idea is that the people in this category are very low risk. At the higher end of the spectrum, the fives and the sixes, the highest risk folks for new criminal activity, that is 48% and 55% likelihood of committing a new offense if they're released pretrial. So about half of those people will commit a new offense if they're released pretrial. Now, what the risk tool doesn't say to the judge is that this person in front of you will definitively be arrested. What it does say is that one in two of the people who come before you will be rearrested. And so to us, what that means is that you should pay more attention, you should look more thoroughly at the facts of the case, um, and you should do a more in-depth analysis of whether or not this person should be released. Um, when we think about things like violence, um, we find that of the people released in Kentucky who had the violence flag versus the people who didn't have the violence flag, they're exponentially more likely to commit an act of violence. Judges are still releasing some of them, um, but when you look at what happens as the outcome, it's off the charts different. Um, and so what's really important, and the point you made I think is really relevant in saying that the tool, you know, it's not the matrix. We don't go into someone's mind and tell you exactly what will happen if someone's released. What it does tell you is it helps sort people into these categories that help identify judges, low risk, can someone be released without conditions? Um, moderate risk, are there some conditions that would help someone in the community um, not commit new offenses and return to court? And then high risk, the folks whom, if you are going to release them, should have should either be detained or have the most significantly restrictive conditions of release. Um, and so that's the way it works. Um, the thing I want to say to the bigger point, though, which I think is the really, and I haven't made it yet, but I think it's really important, is that Everyone th should think about the way the criminal justice system works today. 
right? So I've given you some indication by talking about the way juvenile justice in New Jersey worked and by the fact that when we've looked at this national data, we've seen that a lot of low-level nonviolent folks are incarcerated and a lot of high-risk violent folks are released. But the way it works today is twofold. There are two different ways jurisdictions do it. One is by charge, right? So we know nothing about the individual offender, right? We're making a purely blanket decision that you've, you've been arrested for X offense, and so this is what your terms of release should be. There's nothing individualized about that, right? There's nothing scientific about that. It's pure just saying, okay, for for robbery, this is the going rate for robbery. This is the going rate for theft. And the second way it happens is purely subjective. Um, And if it was purely subjective and we all thought the system worked well, we might be having a different conversation. Um, But when we look purely at the facts of what's happening nationally, we know that the subjective system can be improved. Um, And, in fact, the research is really clear in showing that the best decision-making comes from the subjective application of discretion of a judge to an objective tool, right? So giving a judge an objective measure um, and then having them put their individual discretion and the facts of the case and the life of the individual offender in front of them into their decision. Um, hi, I'm Beth Schwartzevel from the Marshall Project. Um, hi. I've tried, I've started looking into covering some of these risk assessment instruments, and one of the surprises that I've run into is that a lot of them are proprietary. Um, I think the LSIR is one where you can't find out what their algorithm is. Like you can find out what questions they ask, but um, finding out how much they weigh, weight each of the questions, um, they won't tell you because they're a company and they're trying to make money off of it. So um, that's just one example of a larger question I have, which is how? what are some smart questions we can ask um, or critical questions we can ask of these companies that make these um, these these uh, tools and even in a more transparent setting like the ORAS or whatever um, what are some you know smart things that we need to know um, to know if they're doing a good job I'll, I can answer Please. that <clears throat> having run into it don't ask the companies they have no incentive to give this to you but think about who else has this and ask those people. I mean, they have the document. So it could be somebody, it could be a legislature who's pushing for these reforms who has that document. It could be a, the, you know, the head of the defense bar in a state who has fought to the nail to get this document. They have them. I mean, it's hard, and you have to push for it. Drop, you know, freedom of information requests for the tests and, um, and, and you know, get their answers. But there's, people have these documents, so the company's not going to give them to you, and it's very difficult to get them from the states, too, because I'm sure that they've signed agreements, but there, I mean, there are ways to, to get them. Can I just add one, one thing to that, Beth? It's just, just sort of <clears throat> to ask, um, make sure that you're, you're asking um, how much of this tool is is being used for sort of that detention decision in and out versus how much um, is being used to do case planning, right? So a lot of the information, I'm sorry she's not on the line still, but a lot of that information that, that sort of giving people pause about is, it, is this appropriate information to consider here might actually not be weighted at all in the calculations of whether or not somebody's high, medium, or low risk, but it's collected for precisely for the purposes of trying to make sure that there is a good recidivism reduction plan so that that person's individual criminal risks and needs are being addressed. And I think, um, right, so you've you got to make sure you're not conflating the risk and the needs part of these equations. Hello, I'm Zaire Singleton. I'm also a journalist. Um, I know a couple of cases where there where there were Marines who went um, and fought in a war and then came back and then suffered from PSD, I believe it's called. So then instead of just staying home, they went and did another term and continued to do so because they they do not know how to um, function in the regular society. So with that being said, I see the same thing as far as individuals who are incarcerated because the um, just the whole lifestyle is different from people who aren't. So with is the what was my question do you ask as far as part of the assessment how long have they been incarcerated and is that a factor as far as if they will end up back in jail we don't ask that we don't ask length of incarceration um it's not a factor for us in our um we do ask felony or misdemeanor convictions um which are you know, different level offenses, but we don't ask length of incarceration. We do ask prior, I, I believe we ask prior incarceration, but not the length. Would it make sense? The length, we've tested it. I mean, basically what I, what I can say is that, I mean, the, the, the one thing I would say about this space and to this question is that 
the amazing thing about having all this data um, is that you can test all these questions, right? And you can really understand um, what matters and what doesn't matter. And, you know, we didn't want to have a 110-item risk assessment, so our goal was to make it as simple as possible. But we really have added every every factor that we think is highly predictive. Um, and again, when we add other factors, it doesn't make it more predictive. Um, there is one thing I did want to say, which um, it would be sinful of me to finish this talk and not have said, which is that um, Professor Starr does an excellent job talking about questions of discrimination um, based on race and gender and socioeconomic status. Um, and we have designed our tool and we have tested our tool to make sure that it is race and gender neutral. Um, and we, of course, don't have the socioeconomic factors. So because we are doing a debate about um, discrimination and risk assessment tools, it would be very poor if I forgot to tell you that um, we've run all the analytics on this um, very carefully. We've tested it in Kentucky and many other places, um, and it comes out to be race and gender neutral. Professor Starr, are you there? Yeah, but I couldn't hear the question, so if you repose it, I will. I've lost the question at this point. Oh, whether length of incarceration should factor into these risk assessments. Whether, whether prior whether what yeah. incarceration? Yeah. incarceration? The length of time. Yeah, the length of time you served. I, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't hear. Whether what, whether what should factor? Um, the length of time that you served. So should that be a factor in the risk assessment? Like, it, like about, you mentioned about Kentucky, I was curious, are you any other jurisdictions at this point uh, close to that, or where does that stand? Because I'm kind of curious about the instrument and its success and all that. Yeah, we are also in Santa Cruz, um, in California, in Mecklenburg County, Charlotte, North Carolina, and in five counties in Arizona. We're just now getting the data out. Of course, the challenge is we've been up there for a long time. The challenge is that you have to have enough cases closed um, to have a fair degree of certainty, and so we're, we're still in that process. Um, by cases closed, but by that I mean in order to judge whether or not somebody's um, committed a new crime during pretrial um, release, you have to basically follow them through the pendency of that case. And so you couldn't really wait three months and say, oh, it's great, nobody's committing a crime when people might be out for nine months and they might commit a crime in eight months and 20 days. Um, so we wait until um, you know almost all of the cases have closed out. So that's the, that's the tricky thing on timing. No, no, it's all free. It's all free. Um, and our intention is to make it publicly available um, and to make it available to any jurisdiction. You know, it's taken us a, somewhat of a long period of time to do the piloting work because we want to make sure that the factors are correct, that it's implementable by the jurisdictions, that we have the right training materials. But the goal really is to do this because we want jurisdictions to be able to have it. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm Dr. Gordy Schiff. I'm, I'm going to be speaking tomorrow about some medical analogies, but let me go with to a different one than what we're talking about tomorrow. I mean, we use risk prediction tools 
all the time in medicine. You know, somebody comes in and you decide based on certain factors how likely they are to have a serious blood clot versus just sending them home or a heart attack. Um, so there's, I, I'm not um, adverse to this idea, but there's something very disquieting about this. And I think even uh, partly it's the communication because of the, uh, the Amtrak. I'm going to be on that same Amtrak tomorrow. They just canceled my train. So uh, uh. I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, sympathetic to that, that uh, communication problem. But even those comments in the rooms, people, you know, this idea about sort of labeling people in such a way based on their past behavior and things they don't have control over, it just seems there's something fundamentally, profoundly disturbing, if not wrong and unfair, about this model and this approach. And so I want to raise sort of an, an alternative aspect. Again, I'll just use the medical analogy. Um, sometimes we're not sure what's going on with people. So we change the follow-up, and, and you alluded to this a little bit. So, I mean, you know, even the, the, the low-risk people, you said, have 10%. So that means you're going to send a lot of people home. Probably the majority of crimes are going to be committed in that low-risk group, just in the absolute number. I assume more people fall into that category. And so, so and, and, you know, and even the quote, the high-risk people, you say half of them are not. So they're, they're still, it's still a very blunt tool. So to me, it seems that a lot of this has to do with what you do with people when they, quote, get out or they're released. And, and I'm not an expert on this, you know, whether we're talking about putting bracelets on people or giving them some money so that they can go to a, you know, a food shelter every day or give them drugs like methadone so they don't have to start, you know, breaking into my home to get money to, to support their habit. So it just Hi. seems this is barking up the wrong tree Hi. in terms of really where we want to emphasize um, how, how we think about this. And we ought to pre think about the safety nets out there rather than the this, this safety net of, of labeling people more scientifically or what, whatever the, the, the conversation is going. Um, I think, uh, and Sonia, of course, at any point you want to jump in, please do. Um, it, so I think the medical analogy is an interesting one um, because I think, um, of course, you analyze risk all the time, right? And you're making decisions based on that. And you have information that's supplied to you um, from different tests that come to you, and you have to use that information as a doctor to make a decision. It's no different here for a judge making the final decision. Um, the other piece, which I think is really critically important to think about, is that the science is really clear that low-risk offenders who are over-supervised or who are detained have negative consequences. Right. So the idea of, you know, take a low risk offender and give them a program or give them something. Well, it seems like the most common sense thing in the world. And at first I would have thought the exact same thing. It turns out that the more I've read and come to understand, it turns out actually not to be the case. And so it is really important to make these decisions well. And judges make them every day. So it's not like we're sitting here saying we're going to take all evaluations of risk off the table um, and we're going to release everyone or we're going to supervise everyone. These determinations are made purely subjectively every day. And what we know from the data we see nationally is that they're often not made well. So do I say that risk assessment is a perfect system? No. Um, I think it is a far better system than we live in today, and I think it can aid in decision-making. We see frequently that judges don't follow the risk tool. Um, in Kentucky, they follow it, but there are times when they don't follow it. Um, and that tells me, and that, that to me is a very good thing because it means that they're doing what a doctor should do or what anyone else should do, which is to take the evidence and the data they have. It's one piece of information um, to look at the facts of the case and then to make their best judgment on what the right outcome in a case is. Um, I, uh, when David mentioned Caleb Foote, I was reminded... Um, to ask you, is this an alternative to the money bail system? Is it an add-on to the money bail system? Does it just further complicate the inequities of the money bail system? That's my short answer. Um, so that's a great question. So I think here's how I would describe it to you. Um, I think in criminal justice for a long time we've asked the wrong question, right? Um, the question we generally ask when somebody's arrested and comes before a court is what conditions should we impose upon them? So the first questions are what bail, what level of supervision, and we don't ask, to me, what is the number one question, which is what risk does someone pose to public safety, right? That question is often not even explicitly made when the first thing we do, and again, when we talk about 
you know, somebody commits a theft and there's a bail schedule in a lot of jurisdictions, right? So you commit X offense and this is what your conditions of release would be, often often money bail. Um, sometimes it's other conditions of supervision, but it's often financial and other conditions. Um, what we what we believe is that the first question is risk. The first question is who who poses a risk to public safety and should be detained, and who does not and can be released, or who poses a moderate level of risk and can perhaps be supervised or monitored in the community or given other alternatives to incarceration. That's the first question. The second question of what conditions should be placed on people. At this point, we leave it to the individual jurisdictions to make that decision. Um, what we have seen repeatedly is we've done some research on supervision to figure out supervision, whether or not it, it's helpful. Um, there's some indication that it does bring people back to court, um, but there's not a lot of definitive information about supervision. There's not a lot of definitive information about the other conditions of release, right? So at this point, we feel very confident in saying the first question and the main question should be risk. You should make a determination based on risk. The people who you are going to release with conditions, that at that point, you should decide which conditions. But what I would argue is there needs to be a lot more research on those conditions. We have time for maybe one more question. John over there. Yeah, just, just briefly from a practitioner's perspective, um, in, in answer to, to many of the, the concerns and questions right, right here, I always go back to that you can't change what you don't measure. The, the current system uh, used for uh, making determinations of who we detain and who we don't is um, almost predominantly uh, cash as a proxy for risk right now. It just is. And so the system lies to itself often uh, because we don't want to just bluntly say, I'm recommending uh, $100,000 because it's a homicide. I don't really care what the guy's risk is. Um, you know, the political risk is too great not to do it. This is an opportunity, and it is not – it is not the be-all, end-all, but it is an opportunity to start objectively measuring risk and then, and then going back and looking at whether you're successful or not. If, if, you're, if you're not successful, you have the opportunity to change it based on the data that you get from your jurisdictions. We don't have that ability right now, and, and you certainly don't have the ability to do it nationwide. And that's why I think this is at least a valuable opportunity for systems to engage in some political risk um, and, and actually measure what they do and see if it works better. That, that's, that's the approach I take on it. Okay, I wonder if do we have a, do you want to respond to that one? final yep. word from Sonia. Yep. Great. Okay. Is, is she looking for one more question? Please, that one over here. Okay, quick, quick one. So, I guess we know that... Um, Yeah, I mean, the, the question of disproportionate minority um, contact comes up a lot. Um, one way we account for it in, in our work is by not using arrests, by only using convictions. Um, so, uh, and obviously a criminal conviction, you've either pled guilty in a court of law under oath or you've gone to trial. Um, and so we think it's a fair measure. It also happens to be um, incredibly predictive of, of future behavior, um, prior criminal convictions. And so... If the question is, do risk assessments change the entire criminal justice system from the time someone's born, the answer is no. Um, what they do do is change the release detention decision to make it more fair. Um, and again, look, in New Jersey, what we saw was we went from 1,000 kids being incarcerated to 600, right, and lower crime. And so that's 400 more kids who are not incarcerated. And so, you know, to me, you know, I think John said it best, it's sort of a question of what are the results, right? Let's measure um, the outcomes and see, see what they are. So, Sonia, if you're there, uh, we can have a two-minute, maybe closer from you. Maybe that's her. I'm here. I'm on 8th Avenue. Is there any point of me jumping in a cab? Are you guys, are you guys done? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I just wanted to ask you guys about the Supreme Court case that you guys Okay, well, I think we owe, we owe a, a special applause for Sonia, if she can hear us. <laughs> and I want to thank Eileen and Anne for uh, being great troopers. This is a great panel. And a special thanks to our technical guy, who's not here right now, but uh, if you clap loud enough, he'll hear you. And we're now going to break. I'd like uh, uh, our fellows and our speakers to join... Um, Join us upstairs. Uh, Ricardo will show you the way. We want to get you out 
and up as quickly as possible. Thank you again. Uh, we'll see the rest of you tomorrow morning. Um, great panel.